been a long week. How's everybody doing? Just uh, some up, some sideways, a couple down. Yeah. I, I mean, double thumbs up still. Well, you got a lot of candy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It is a uh, a wonderful, crazy time of year. Not just this year, but every year. I mean, spring is definitely in the air. Um, Corey and I have already started on our garden, got some new topsoil in. We haven't planted yet, but I've seen people planting and weeding. People are doing the fixer-upping stuff on the house. They're knocking the rust off the, uh, their bikes for the, uh, the fair-weather bikers, and the running shoes are coming back out. And kids, I know it's spring break for you, right? How do you feel about that? Is it, how do you feel about spring break, kids? Are you, you happy? Okay, with some, with some city of subdued excitement, we're raising subdued children. Yeah, but, but for you kids who are on spring break, I know that uh, it doesn't mean always a lot of rest. Like some of you have soccer, right, and t-ball, and dancing, and theater, and music lessons, and all kinds of different things, and it can be a hectic time of life. And if you are a parent of one of these kids, you know that you're basically a chauffeur taking them to all of these places. Uh, it's a season also of traveling for some. Of course, you wouldn't be here right now if you were traveling, but... Maybe you're a guest with us and you've traveled here. Uh, it's a season of going to see family, family coming to see you. And for some of us, it's a season where uh, family that we would love to see is no longer with us uh, at Easter time. Some of you are graduating university and looking forward to a new career. And some of you are counting the days until summer break because you have a few years left. We pray for you. And the Christian calendar doesn't really let up either. I mean, last Sunday was Palm Sunday, and then there was Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and Easter egg yesterday, and I'm ex exhausted just saying all of these things. But the point is that you might be here tonight feeling not very prepared, not very mentally uh, engaged in, in Easter, what it means to celebrate Easter. And I don't think that being tired, distracted, or weary is too far off from how Jesus' first disciples felt on that first Sunday after he was crucified. It was a busy week already. They had traveled to Jerusalem, prepared for the Passover, and then after dinner, Jesus strangely washed their feet, and then they, they sang a hymn on the way to their favorite olive grove, not the olive garden, they didn't have that then. I don't think Jesus would have eaten there anyway, but anyways. Um, and that's when it all went sideways, at least from the disciples' perspective. As they were dozing off, they heard the clink, clank of armor, the shuffling of feet, the bouncing shadows of handheld lanterns coming their way. It was a posse, a group of soldiers led by their fellow disciple, Judas Iscariot, who led this group up to the master Jesus, kissing him on the cheek. Words exchanged, swords brandished, confrontation, resignation, arrest. The disciples fled. One of them barely got away with his life. A soldier remained standing with John's cloak as he ran away naked in terror. Jesus was dragged to a mock trial, beaten. False witnesses brought before the council. Even though their testimony didn't line up, he was brought then to Pilate on trumped-up charges. Pilate being the Roman governor over Judea, over that area. And you know what happened from there. As the story goes, Jesus is humiliated, beatings, mocking, cruel sneering, nails in the hands, nails in the feet. There's burial, a massive stone 
covering the tomb, dead. And with Jesus' death, I have to imagine the death of a thousand hopes and dreams that the disciples had had, the death of life as they knew it. They had given three years to following this man, thinking in their minds and in their hearts that things would be different. And he was gone. And so you see, you could say that the disciples were out of sorts on the first Easter Sunday. You could say they weren't quite ready for what happened. And so if you don't feel quite ready today to celebrate well with your full self because you're tired or distracted or exhausted, you're in good company. But that begs the question, what exactly did happen? Like, what happened 2,000 years ago that we still seem to talk about it, even today, and dress up in funny outfits and have special symbols? Of course, I'm referring to the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection, there would be no church. There would be no hope of forgiveness through the death of Jesus. And Paul, the great apostle who planted so many churches, would never have met the risen Jesus, because he would have been dead, on that road to Damascus. He would have never been a transformed person who then spread the gospel throughout the world. Easter Sunday is special because it's Resurrection Sunday. It is the day that changes every other day. Now, Paul brought this message of resurrection, of good news, to the city of Corinth, roughly the late 40s A.D. to early 50s A.D. Corinth was this city that was pagan to its core. It was a Roman settlement, so you've got Roman background, in a Greek nation, so you've got Greek background, and then it was a place where merchants and sailors would come bringing their thoughts and ideas and religion and culture and language. And yet none of the money, the decadence, the status, or religions offered there satisfied anyone for any length of time past their earthly life. Not until the gospel, when Paul came proclaiming the the resurrection of Jesus. Paul spent 18 months there preaching this resurrection of Christ, training up leaders from new converts, and, uh, and, and just investing his life in the church. And Once Paul left to plant other churches, things began to kind of take a shift sideways. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul addresses some of these issues about the church and resurrection. So stand with me, please, as we read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures." And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. Lord Jesus, thank you for your servant Paul, who not only proclaimed good news 2,000 years ago, um, but Lord, continues to preach to us through this word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words and make them come alive in our hearts. Transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I mentioned earlier that Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is the big day on the Christian calendar. If Christianity were a musical piece, Easter Sunday would be the crescendo of the piece. If Christianity were a mystery novel, Easter Sunday would be the chapter that the detective cracks the big case, right? And everything is figured out. If Christianity were the culmination of a sporting season, Easter Sunday would be the World Series or the World Cup or the Super Bowl Sunday. Take the Super Bowl, for example. Yes, in football, in football. The two best teams of the season supposedly face off. The best teams get to the Super Bowl by doing what they do best. So some teams get to the Super Bowl on a great passing game. Some teams get to the Super Bowl by a great defense. And some teams get to the Super Bowl by a great running game. Now, my point is that Super Bowl winning teams don't do one thing to get to the Super Bowl, then all of a sudden change their game plan on the day of the Super Bowl, they just are consistent with the basics. So, for example, let's say a team is a running team, a strong running team, and they have one of the best running backs in the whole NFL. He even has a nickname like, let's pretend it's Beast Mode. And if that team got to the Super Bowl on a running attack, and then let's pretend they were on the one-yard line, one yard from victory. Now, how ridiculous would it be? That team would never throw the ball on the one-yard line. Right? You would, of course, get back to basics and run the ball in. It's a little too close to home. I'm sorry. Bad form on my part. It's easy to get pulled away from center, right? From the center. But there's a certain beauty in the basics. The church in Corinth, had heard the good news, but they were getting away from center. And like every generation, don't think we're exempt, but like every generation, they were influenced by their culture in the swirling mixture of philosophical, political, and religious beliefs. And soon they found themselves denying one of the central beliefs of the Christian faith, and that is resurrection of Jesus. So Paul writes this letter to get back to basics. He reminds them, hey, not only have I preached the good news, the gospel to you, but you guys received the good news. You listened to it. You took it in. You molded over. And more than receiving the good news, this is what the Corinthian church did. They stood in it, which, which, it, which means that they lived it out. They were transformed by the good news of Jesus because the news of Jesus is more than just news. You see, to those who trust or put their faith in the resurrection of Jesus, it is the power of God over sin and death. 
Faith in Jesus is nothing short of new life. These folks in Corinth were saved by this good news, and now it seems that they were rejecting the reality of the resurrection. So Paul reminds them that resurrection is not just an add-on to the gospel, it is one of the core truths. It is basic center. To make his point, he quotes a very early creed in the Christian faith. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So here's the great apostle Paul who could say a lot of things out of authority, but he decides to preach something that he too received. And that means that the gospel preached to Corinth is not something Paul just made up. It's not wishful thinking. That the resurrection of Jesus is something that he received, too, when he became an apostle. And this was the message, or or what was the message of first importance that he's talking about? Really, it's two main things. So if you're wondering about the basics of the faith, here we go. First, that Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures. Now, I said there were two main things. Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures. That's one. Let's break that down a little bit. Okay, the first part of that has to do with what theologians call atonement. Kids, can you say atonement? Atonement, yes, of course, very good. Um, and what is atonement? It's, a mysteri- it's the mysterious way in which Jesus' death is associated with our sin. Every single culture in the history of the planet, as far as anthropologists have discovered so far, has some kind of awareness of sin, whether we like to talk about it or not. You know, in some parts of history and in some cultures, sin and evil, personal evil, was just as common to talk about around the dinner table as the weather or or the, the current events. It was just what happened. In fact, some cultures really thought that the weather was directly related to our behavior, right? So that's animist cultures, and we think we need to appease certain gods in order to get the weather to rain for the, the rainy season or, or, or whatnot. Sacrifices were made to appease the weather gods. In in pagan Rome, gods and goddesses were seen as dangerous and fickle, easily offended and vindictive, so they had to be atoned. Sin had to be atoned for. Now, in our culture, sin is a different deal. We we don't like to talk about sin. You rarely hear sin in mass media. Uh, People aren't evil in our culture. We don't have evil people in Bellingham. We, We just have deviant people or antisocial behavior, right? Behaviors aren't good or bad in Bellingham. They're mainstream or they're unique expressions of one's personality. And, and in our culture, we don't do a very good job of, of practicing confession and absolution, but we wonder why we're one of the most anxious, chemically dependent cultures in modern history. We don't sin in Bellingham, do we? We have issues. Well, Christ died for your issues too, all right? The fact is that our sin destroys us. It harms other people. When we go against who we were created to be, image bearers of the living God, and what we were created to do, reflect God's goodness and glory to the creation and to each other, when we don't live that way, we ache in the inside. And sometimes... In fact, I would say each one of us lives with some kind of limp on the inside, an emotional limp, a psychological limp, something about us that we know isn't just quite right, but we've learned to live with. 
think about it. When you look at yourself, when I, I'll just speak for myself. When I look at myself, I know I've got a problem that feels outside of my control. You and I, we often find ourselves doing things that we don't really want to do when we're in our right mind or on a good day. Sometimes it's anger that wells up inside us and we lash out only to regret it later. Wish I hadn't have done that. Wish I hadn't have said that. Wish I hadn't have reacted that way. And sometimes we're real good at putting masks on and stuffing our, our, our behaviors down, but we feel the anger, don't we? And sometimes it's greed that raises its ugly head. It makes us seek our own advantage over and above at the expense of other people. Grown-ups do this all the time by being a little bit stingy or uh, using fancy words to cover up how we use our money. Now, kids, I know you, I kind of maybe witnessed a little bit of this recently, uh, especially you older brothers and sisters. Have you ever taken your Easter basket with your younger brother and sister and done a little trade? Like, oh, a, your Snickers bar is totally equal to that Tootsie Roll in my back. I don't like Tootsie Rolls. You know what I'm saying? So like sometimes we get over on each other for our own good, even if it costs somebody else something. Whatever our stumbling blocks are, we have a sense, I think, when we're introspective, that things are not quite right on the inside. And what Paul is saying is that from the earliest tradition, the center of the gospel, the good news has been, hey, Jesus has died for your sin. God himself so loves you and so loves his world that he put on flesh and gave himself in death for your sake and for my sake. Now, theologians try and get at or explain or unpack what happened on the cross with different theories of atonement. There's that word again, kids, atonement. Now, none of these theories perfectly sum up what happened on the cross, and what they all point to is that Jesus took on the consequences of our actions so that we could be free. He died so that you and I wouldn't have to be controlled by our sins. Now, part of the obvious nature or uh, the obvious thing that, uh, about this statement is that Jesus died. I mean, he really actually died. The Romans who crucified him were experts at execution. They didn't let anybody off the hook, so they killed Jesus, made sure they broke the legs of the guys next to him because they weren't quite dead yet. They went to do the same to Jesus. They said, no, this guy's dead. He's gone. Poked him with the spear, and then they put him in a tomb with a gigantic stone over the front of it. His disciples went into mourning because he was dead, which brings us to the second main thing about the gospel. Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, According to the scriptures. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus, like, all of a sudden after three days, came back to life, like Lazarus when he was dead and Jesus calls him out of the tomb. He wasn't revived. You see, resurrection isn't just a new way of existing. Resurrection is not something that happens to you when you die and your soul leaves your body. Resurrection is the biblical vision of being actually dead and then actually rising into a new kind of body. It's not disembodied spirits floating around like ghosts. Now the deal is that with Jewish and Christian thought, the body and physical things, all of creation, are good things. God made them. And we also believe that because of sin, the body and the world have become corrupt. Like, 
There's great things about you and me. There's great things about the world. In fact, I would still argue there's a lot of great things. But everything's also a little off. Well, at least I am. And things die in the world, and things don't go right all the time. Sin has infected us and the world. And the great hope is that one day we will be given resurrected bodies that don't break down, that don't have the same problems physically or spiritually or with our morality or with our ethics. We will be able to be fully like Christ. Now the problem was that much of Greek philosophy taught that the body was inherently corrupt, that physical creation was somehow a mistake, that the ultimate freedom or goal of humanity was to escape the body. And one of the biggest obstacles for these Corinthian Christians was the fact that they struggled with the idea of having a body forever. Like, who would want to have a body forever? That's horrible. We should escape the physical world. They felt like the body was a trap. And so they believed that their sins were forgiven in Jesus, but instead of resurrection, they began to hope in a spiritual escape. Paul reminds them that Christianity isn't just a bunch of ideas that somebody thought up that you can just take and then twist how you want to. You can't just take the central gospel and then say, well, we don't like that part about resurrection, so we're going to invent this new part where we just float up in the clouds together. When Paul says that Jesus died and rose according to the scriptures, I don't think he's thinking of, oh, here are like six texts in the, in the Old Testament that say Jesus is going to rise uh, on the third day and, and all of these kind of things. I think what he's saying is that God's story as a whole, the entire thing we call the Old Testament, uh, his coming to earth, his dying for us, his resurrection, it is all what the Bible is pointing to. It is the point. The Bible preaches Jesus, born, dead, resurrected, and reigning. Paul is saying that the story is much bigger than you, Corinthians, and he's saying to us today, this story of God is much bigger than you, lettered streetsers. We don't just get to come into it and then change it how we want it to change. Jesus actually died. He actually rose. And the risen Jesus was actually seen and touched and experienced. He appeared to Cephas, who is the fancy name for Paul, or to Peter. He appeared to Peter, one of the main church leaders, highly esteemed by the Corinthians, which is why he's named. By the way, I just want to say this because I've got three daughters, and I love my wife, and I love you ladies. The first people to see Jesus in all the Gospels were women. And I think that Paul doesn't include them here because these Corinthians were kind of they didn't have a high view of women. And he wanted to uh, convince them of the resurrection of Jesus, and they were really big on Peter. And so he mentions that Peter was, you know, one of the first ones to see him. But I bet if he's contextualizing this to a different audience, he's going to include that the women were first. And I say that because I want to contextualize things to my audience, and I think that's an important part, that in the, in the actual historical accounts of the resurrection— People put that women saw Jesus first, that the first one to preach the resurrection was Mary, who ran to tell the disciples, as Eric read earlier, all right? So he appears here to, to, to Peter, and then he was seen by the twelve, and the twelve by this time was a fancy title for those 
original 12 disciples. Of course, he really appeared to 11 because Judas Iscariot had kind of had some trouble and, and uh, he was no longer with them. John records the visitation with Jesus actually eating food with the 11. Um, he does crazy things like pass through a door like superpowers and then he's physical. And Thomas actually touches Jesus and his scar. So he's not just a ghost. In fact, the disciples thought he was a ghost. And then he started eating with them and touching them and all this kind of stuff. Then he was seen by over 500 brothers and sisters. And Paul is sure to say most of them are still around. Some of them have fallen asleep, which is kind of a euphemism for they died. But basically the point is most of these 500 brothers and sisters are still around. Ask them. I mean, it's a clear call to say, check it out if you don't believe me. He appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, and this one's very interesting to me because the Gospels talk about James, uh, the, the brother of Jesus, and he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He did not believe his older brother Jesus was anything special. One time, Jesus was teaching at a home, and Jesus' mom and his brother and sisters came to take custody of him. They thought he was crazy. Something happened to James. After Jesus died, James had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. It so transformed this man, this doubter of his own brother, that he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The resurrected, uh, resurrected Jesus appeared then to all the apostles, that is, most likely the group from the book of Acts who received the Holy Spirit. That's a group um, who were sent to tell people about the gospel is a bigger group than just the 12 apostles. And finally, Paul says he appeared to me as one untimely born, literally as one who was an afterthought, one who was defective, one who was a reject. You probably don't have to think very far back to identify with one of those terms. Even those of us with great confidence on the outside sometimes struggle on the inside, measuring ourselves up with other people, feeling like a reject compared to everybody else, feeling defective and afterthought. Paul was worse than just having a self-esteem issue. He was actually a persecutor of the church. He tried to bring people um, to their death. He was bent on destroying the church, and then, the story goes, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute one of the, the Christian churches there, and Jesus, not a vision of Jesus, but the resurrected Jesus, appeared to him, and Paul was transformed forever. For the first time, Paul was actually free of guilt and shame. He was free of trying to control the world around him. Any control freaks out there? You don't have to raise your hand. I know some of you, like me. He was free from that trap of feeling the responsibility that's not yours to bear. And Paul was won over by the beauty of the basics, the basic foundational reality that the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth. He came to rescue his creation by giving his life for them, and he rose from the grave and resurrection. Paul came to realize that if Jesus wasn't resurrected, if he isn't alive right now, then his death really atoned for nothing. The cross, that whole thing we talk about on Good Friday, was just another revolutionary dying. 
if he didn't rise from the grave. Paul says we're all still dead in our sins if he didn't rise. And that's why he's so adamant that the Corinthians get back to basics. And that's why on this Easter Sunday, I've chosen this text to preach from. It's easy for us to make following Jesus about many, many good but extra things. Bible studies, service projects, morals and ethics, egg hunts, going to church rather than being the church. Easter, to me, is a great time to get back to basics. Christianity, this following Jesus we talk about, it's not primarily about what you do. It's primarily about what God has done in Jesus. Because Jesus died and rose again, you can be free of sin and full of resurrection life. That's it. That's the nugget of good news. That's the basics. That would have won the Seahawks the Super Bowl. (laughs) Sorry, Jeff. Maybe nothing could have stopped it. (laughs) Because Jesus died and rose again, you and I can have hope and eternal life. And that looks like resurrected bodies that don't break down, that will not be corrupted. Because of the basics of the gospel, we will inherit new creation when God returns in his glory. Because our world is not going to be cast out, burned up, because we're not going away to heaven, because God is going to heal this planet, keep the good things, cast out the evil things, and you're going to be remade, resurrected on this plate. You know what that means? That what you do, what I do, matters now. That our mandate from Genesis 1 and 2, to care for creation, to engage in meaningful vocation, to love our neighbors. It matters because we don't believe in an escapist religion. We believe in a resurrection religion. We believe in a resurrected Christ. That means our character development matters. It means our obedience to Jesus matters. It means our love of neighbor matters. Our care for creation matters. Life matters. And you matter. You matter. And that's the good news for today, and that's good news for all time. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we declare today that you conquered death, and you rose from the grave, and that we have life in your life. Lord, I pray for each one here who has not yet tasted new life, forgiveness of sin, freedom. Lord, that today might be the day that you enter in, that you receive even the smallest prayer of, I need you, Lord, and that you would come and save lives. Lord, for those who have been walking with you for, uh, for some time, who have grown apathetic, routine, doubtful, overcome with grief, Holy Spirit, won't you revive us today Breathe resurrection life into us as individuals and as Lettered Streets Covenant Church and as your church throughout the world. Bless you, Lord. Come, take up residence in our hearts. Amen.